0: Hello, and welcome to today's seminar on the science behind COVID-19. I'm Chelsea Farrell, the Assistant Director of the Lakshmi Mittal and Family South Asia Institute at Harvard University. Without further ado, I'd like to introduce the moderator of today's panel, Dr. Jennifer Leaning. Dr. Leaning is Professor of the Practice of Health and Human Rights at the Harvard Chan School of Public Health and a Senior Fellow at the Harvard FXB Center. As Associate Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School, she is a faculty member in the Department of Emergency Medicine at Brigham and Women's Hospital. Dr. Laning served as the director of the Harvard FXB Center from 2010 through 2018. Prior to her appointment in 2010, she served for five years as co-director of the Harvard Humanitarian Initiative. Dr. Laning, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you very much, Chelsea, and a warm welcome to all of you in the audience. And uh, I would um, like to uh, welcome you to a Uh, what I perceive to be very important discussion from three scientists with tremendously different um, expertise and it gives you a sense of how wide science can be and the extent to which their different uh, zones of knowledge contribute to our understanding of the science that we need to understand when we consider COVID-19. I will start with introducing um, each of the panelists. So the first person we will be um, hearing from is Dr. Victoria D'Souza. She's professor of molecular and cellular biology at Harvard University and a Howard Hughes Medical Institute faculty scholar. She also serves as the director for the Molecules, Cells and Organisms graduate program at Harvard. Her lab is interested in RNA biology and conducts research on RNA viruses, including retroviruses like HIV and coronaviruses like SARS. So uh, Victoria, um, please, if you could begin and um, tell us what you were interested in your own lab. Um, What's so special about RNA viruses that um, makes it intellectually stimulating for you? And as I gather, a major focus um, for your career.
1: Sure, um, you know I've been interested in RNA viruses for a very long time since I was a graduate student. What's uh, fascinating about these viruses are like they technically, typically, tend to be tiny in terms of we're talking about ten thousand nucleotides. Um, don't know, do get a little bigger, but still about thirty thousand nucleotides. And they are interacting with host cells that have millions of base pairs of DNA. The viruses are making, let's say, about 13 to 28 proteins. And in the host cell, you have millions of these proteins. Yet the virus is able to efficiently navigate that complex host cell, sometimes completely change what the host cell behavior is doing and manipulate it completely so it can reproduce and make a lot of itself. So this constant battle between host and viruses, I'm, I'm very extremely interested in, in that, and just the complexity that can come from very tiny genomes and very li- little proteins and how they literally take over a massive uh, system that, that has evolved billions of years, right? Um, and the other thing fascinating about RNA viruses is that uh, these viruses don't use their genomes just as carrying the genetic information they like these genomes will actually fold into three dimensional structures and so if you've seen the you know any images of the of the virus that's floating around on the media you would have noticed spikes coming out of it these are actually three dimensional structures that the proteins are making Similar structures will form just uh, with the RNA, and in many cases, RNA viruses will use these genomes to actually use these structures to go into the cell and manipulate the cell. So if you take the example of COVID-19, for example, it comes with 30,000 nucleotides, um, and it's one big piece of genome. It, and the basic dogma in the cell that's infected, it says that the cell says that if I have one message that's coming in, then I can only make one protein out of that. That's what eukaryotic cells typically do. And yet this virus is coming up with one message inside the cell, but is telling the cell to make 28 different proteins. So something like that really fascinates me because... It's 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 telling the system to actually behave a little bit differently for itself, and one of the processes that we are very interested in is if you think about the most important enzyme that the RNA virus needs to start sort of copying its genomes to make many many copies of itself, is its most important. About two-thirds of the genome it uses to make a And the most important protein there is the polymerase that's going to copy the genome. And the only way this polymerase can be made is if the virus genome that's coming in is somehow telling the cellular uh, machinery inside the cells that take a message and sort of in three-unit codes are making proteins. And what this message with the help of the structure is telling the virus to do is after you reach a certain point in this message, stop making the protein like you're supposed to make and go back one nucleotide so that now the entire message is in a different frame. So you're making a different kind of protein. So if you think about if this sort of this is called frame shifting, the mechanism for this is called frame shifting, we are very much interested in this. And if you think about if if your cells were uh if the if the protein machinery in the cells were frame shifting at that frequency that the virus is making the 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 host cell do, we wouldn't know evolution as we know it because you would just be making nonsensical protein um, in your host cells, yet this genome structures are coming in and telling this machinery to precisely shift back one nucleotide so I can make my uh, polymerase. So that's the kind of science that is very basic. and it's more to do with once the virus enters the cell, but of course there is a whole lot of biology that goes before the virus enters the cell. And and um, my lab particularly doesn't look at it, but I've become fascinated also just in the terms of being sort of a structural virologist. How do cells recognize the host surface that they that they want to go into? In in terms of like, like I said, if you've if, if you've seen um, like the virus pictures, there are things poking out of the cells of the virus that are called spike proteins, and this this protein um, can then look at a, at a at a host cell and find a receptor that it can bind to, so that the virus can enter the cell. And that receptor um, is the angiotensin. Um, Converting enzyme receptor, we've been able to in record time identify what that receptor is. Um, And uh, we know a lot about COVID biology in a very short time uh, because the way the science has taken the issue very seriously and, and we know a lot about what cells it is binding to, Um, There was a very recent study that just came out a couple of days ago that looked exactly the two receptors you need for the virus to enter the cell and where these are. And it's clear that some of the cells were going to be in the the lungs, that was obvious. And um, the study has now found that cells in your nasal pathway that are making mucuses those cells are also harboring these, these receptors. So that could be the first um, mode of entry. There are cells in your intestine that are also uh, harboring these uh, receptors. Think about viral biology as being pretty complicated. Right now, what the world is listening to is more as to how the virus looks on the outside, how it's gaining entry to go into the particular host cells but once it enters the cell there's a whole other magic going on there which which is going to be really interesting to study for uh,
0: covid 19. thank you that's fascinating Uh, you brought us back to the clinical picture which Mm -hmm. people reading the newspaper are beginning to understand the nose the lungs and some of the gi symptoms that people have and how this little beast of a virus that is so complicated and so powerful, um, how it is actually approaching these tissues and creating illness. So thank you for that. Um, our next speaker is um, Professor Carolyn Bucky. Professor Bucky joined Harvard School of Public Health in the summer of 2010 as an assistant professor of epidemiology and was promoted to associate professor in 2017. The Bucky Lab uses mathematical models and data science to understand the mechanisms driving the spread of infectious diseases. There are many questions I could ask you, Caroline, but let me begin with um, this one. Could you explain why social mobility and migration are so critical to understand the epidemiology of transmittable disease while also speaking to the notions of crowds and diseases? because your models are aggregate ones, and yet you have many insights you can derive from those models about what is actually happening on the ground.
2: Um, yes, uh, thanks. thanks for having me. So um, just like uh, Victoria studies how viruses get between cells, uh, infectious disease epidemiologists study how pathogens spread between people and through populations. And a lot of the work that we do in my lab is actually working with policymakers on questions of resource allocation. So where should I be sending my drugs or bed nets in the case of malaria, which populations need them, when to expect um, outbreaks, for example, of dengue or other other pathogens. And so those questions are fundamentally spatial in nature. So you have to know where all of the diseases are and where your populations at risk are. Um, And so I think uh, the human mobility drives a lot of the spatial patterns of disease spread. Um, And so a lot of the work that we've been doing is trying to understand human migration patterns that are relevant for the spread of infectious diseases using different kinds of data. Uh, Often the mobility patterns are the piece of the puzzle that's missing when you're trying to understand the risk of um, imported infections and the likelihood that a disease will spread from between populations. So for a long time, we've been working with mobile phone companies to use aggregated mobility data to understand those patterns of of the population moving around. Um, And we've been working for a long time to make sure that those data are aggregated and they uh, conform to privacy protocols um, so that there's no possibility of re-identification of individuals and the data is safe, um, which I should say is is a big distinction between those kinds of analyses and, for example, contact tracing, um, apps for, where it's actual, individual level data is the name of the game. We are dealing with aggregated data on a population level to try to understand broad patterns of movement between places. And of course things like seasonal migration and mobility are very important for infectious disease outbreaks. And indeed we've seen in, in this outbreak the travel for the Lunar New Year uh, spread the disease um, significantly leading up to the major outbreak in Wuhan. Um, and we will continue to see those types of large-scale movements impact uh, the spread of disease in general and COVID-19 in particular. Um, of course, Jennifer, that's where we've overlapped because um, large-scale population movements are important for, for other kinds of d- natural disasters and, and how to provide aid to people, where to, how to know where everybody is. Um, I think that there's an important distinction between endemic infectious diseases like malaria Um, versus emerging infectious diseases like COVID-19. So in the context of of an endemic pathogen, where we have diagnostics, we have treatment, we have prevention options, when we're using these kinds of approaches, we're asking the question, okay, well, where do I send my bed nets? I already know what to do, and I already know how to monitor the number of infections that are happening in my population. Where do I, you know, how do I act? In the case of an emerging infectious disease, about which we don't know very much, and uh, I totally agree with Victoria that there's been an incredible amount of science done in a a very short amount of time to understand what this this virus is, how it's related to other coronaviruses, um, and so on. But still, in in the early days of the outbreak, there were many, many uncertainties about the basic epidemiological parameters of this pathogen. And that meant that um, a lot of the efforts to model how it might spread and what we might do about it were riddled with uncertainties um, that were really basic science uncertainties. Things like, how long does it take from getting the disease in my system to having symptoms? And how can I spread the disease to other people in that time period before I know I'm infected. A major uncertainty is how many people have the infection and they have no symptoms at all. And so they are spreading the disease in the community and and we don't know about them. Um, Some of these basic parameters have made it very difficult to assess what's going to happen with the spread. Um, And of course, we've seen uh, that it spread very quickly, first out of the the central um, hotspots of the epidemic through international travel to our major cities. And then subsequently, it spread dramatically within communities. Um, And and of course, there's a very strong um, risk Uh, associated with elderly populations and other underlying comorbidities. Again, those epidemiological features we knew early on, but we're still refining what the overall fatality rate is going to be, how dangerous this virus is. And again, that will help us with our our planning. In the early stages of this outbreak, in the absence of drugs, in the absence of a vaccine, which we won't have for a long time, a year, a year and a half, one of the only responses that you can have to try and control the spread of a disease like this that's directly transmitted between people um, is is using non-pharmaceutical interventions. And the world has largely adopted social distancing or physical distancing interventions uh, to try to slow down the spread of the disease. So uh, shelter in place um, interventions, closing schools, stopping large gatherings, these kinds of approaches are some of the only ways to stop the epidemic from spreading out of control and overwhelming our health system and causing a huge amount of mortality. Now, that links back to my previous work, because of course, what that means is that people stop traveling around as much. And in some cases, travel restrictions have also been imposed, quite severe ones, to try to limit the spread of the virus. So one of the issues of that is that it's very hard to measure the efficacy of those interventions in the absence of data. Uh, and so the um, approaches that we've taken in the past using aggregated mobile phone data to, to look at you know, general patterns of spread Um, of of mobility that you can link to the spread of disease. We have um, started to to do the same thing here where we're just monitoring how much people are traveling in their communities on quite a coarse spatial scale. Um, And that's going to provide us not only with one of the only ways to measure what's working and how much reduction in mobility do we need in order to prevent how much transmission of of the virus, Um, but also as societies um, get through this very the very first part of the, of the first wave of the epidemic and, and start to ask how to open up at least a little bit um, so that people can retain their, their opportunities for livelihoods and feeding their families and so on, we need to be able to monitor uh, what's going on in response. And if we don't have that data linking um, the, the intervention to the number of people that end up in the hospital, then we won't be able to do that in an evidence-based fashion. So, um, so we've been trying to 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 kind of uh, use those data in a way that informs can inform policy and help us think through what's going to work because we will have to we will potentially have to start opening up in advance of any pharmaceutical interventions, which which poses a very big risk. If we look back at um, the 1918 influenza pandemic that killed so many, in many cases when places started to uh, um, think that it was safe uh, there was an enormous resurgence and a massive second wave which in some cases killed many more people than the first wave so we really need to be very careful when we're thinking about how to implement non-pharmaceutical interventions try and gather data that we can that we can systematically link to the epidemiology um, and then make sensible decisions and those decisions are i think from the epidemiological perspective we're seeing the epidemics, um, the, tra- the trajectory of epidemics. is very different in different places. These are local problems, and so the local context is very important when we when we try to think through what types of interventions we might need. Different areas are at different stages of the epidemic. Some are only just beginning. Some are way into their first wave, um, and the decision about how you combine different interventions in the local context is going to be uh, is going to be challenging because the epidemiology itself, the contact rates that underlie uh, the spread of disease, are going to be very dependent on on the the place um, that you're talking about. So I'll I'll stop there um, just to say that you know as we as we move ahead and think about. Uh, how interventions should be informed by data and by models, it's really key that we recognize that although the science is going really fast, there's still a lot of uncertainty. And although we have to make decisions with, uh, with incomplete data, um, it's important to keep in mind that there's still basic parameters that we don't know, and, and we're going to have to be adaptable in our interventions and, and planning.
0: Thank you. So our next speaker is uh, Dr. Sheila Jasanoff. She's a Forzheimer professor of science and technology studies at the Harvard Kennedy School. A pioneer in her field, she also has authored more than 120 articles and chapters and is author or editor of more than 15 books, including The Fifth Branch, Science at the Bar, Designs on Nature, and The Ethics of Invention. Her work explores the role of science and technology in the law, politics, and policy of modern democracies. She founded and directs the program on science technology uh, at Harvard. Previously, she was founding chair of the program at the Department of Cornell. Sheila, would you like to begin and talk about your work and how it relates to this discussion of COVID-19? I know that's a general question, but please take it from there. Thank you, Jennifer. First of all,
3: let me begin by
0: thanking the Metall
3: Institute and to you for hosting it. And it's a pleasure to be um, in this uh, rather gender-unbalanced panel talking about science. So uh, that too is a kind of um, first of kind for uh, my appearances on this subject. Um, So, um, Victoria and uh, Caroline have spoken about uh, the ways in which existing scientific capability has been um, energized and revved up and, and a lot is being learned very quickly um, about the virus on the one hand and its behaviors and about transmission and how it relates to human behaviors and in particular mobility. But one of the things that, that we consider in my field that looks at science and technology in society is a, set, is a sort of third piece of the transmission. So not just you know, what happens at the protein structure level and not what happens when um, a complex invasive agent is fed into uh, human societies that have their own dynamics, but when all of that is fed into a set of institutions and social response mechanisms that ultimately decide what we're actually going to do. I mean, so we as human beings with our particular limitations of knowledge and understanding and our particular needs, whether it's to go outside or exercise or eat or whatever, where are we going to get our advice and who's going to tell us what to do? So one of the things that Victoria and Caroline have both stressed is that in a way uncertainty, non-knowledge is the flip side of knowledge that, that you, it's almost like you enlarge the surface of a sphere that is knowledge, but the uh, aura or penumbra of ignorance increases because you get a bigger sphere with more things that are unknown and unasked. And yet we have very specific needs to, you know, as my colleagues at the Kennedy School say, we have to get up Monday morning and make a decision a decision is very specific. It's very particular. You tell people what to do. uh, And to some degree, I feel enormous sympathy for today's public servants who are having to guide us on simple minded things. I mean, like you take your newspaper and it's suddenly become like a medical advisory system. You know, what are your FAQs? Can you go outside? Should you wear a mask? But they're translation agents for what is happening in the political realm. So it becomes a serious concern for the social sciences. How does the knowledge that gets produced in a basic science lab or in more of a clinical field like epidemiology, how does that find its way into the minds of decision makers who then have to come back and tell us you know, how we should be thinking about a set of things? There was a very simple model abroad at the turn of the, well, sort of at the mid-century about how science relates to politics. And the sort of little formulaic um, way of capturing that was speaking truth to power. Um, So the idea was that scientists, their responsibility is to find out the truth, and to some extent their moral ethical responsibility is to speak the truth two different things, finding it and speaking it. But the idea was that power sits somewhere separate, and then power exercises itself by making policy, by making prescriptions, and telling people what to do. Would those waters have been usefully muddied, but I think also complicatedly muddied, over the seven decades since 1950-ish, when this idea of speaking truth to power was prevalent in the world. For one thing, just because we know a lot more about a lot more, we've also discovered the the codicil that we also know a lot less about a lot more. And therefore making decisions under uncertainty, making decisions in complex systems, these things have arisen as bigger problems for society. And although we have more powerful tools like what Caroline already mentioned, data science and computer modeling, Nevertheless, those tools that are good at dealing with massive invasions of data um, don't necessarily work equally well at producing clear-cut prescriptions for how we go about doing things. So my work has focused for a long time in an area of the social sciences that's devoted to studying how knowledge-making intersects with political practice and political response. And one of the things that is striking at the moment, particularly in the United States, is a kind of gap that was not supposed to happen here. So culturally speaking, America is a country that has been especially devoted to science-driven policymaking. I do a lot of comparative work across countries. And one of the things one finds is that Where other people have political controversies, political parties fighting each other, or social movements, we do that on scientific territory. So if you take something like many people around the world are opposed to nuclear power for legitimate reasons, because they think that nuclear waste has not sufficiently been dealt with, or they're worried about, in essence, having reactors that are proto-nuclear bombs planted in their backyard and they don't know how these things are going to behave. So we've had nuclear mobilization across the world, but it's taken very, very different forms. Only in this country, only in America, have we had the kind of protracted spectacle over now 60, 70 years of scientific controversy over particular solutions. So like Should we bury nuclear wastes at Yucca Mountain? Uh, Some people call Yucca Mountain the uh, the, the most expensive piece of real estate in the world, just because of the amount of money we've invested in trying to learn the science of the geology in which people are going to bury those wastes. So that is not about coronavirus, but it is relevant as a piece of history that in America we have a tendency to translate political conflict into conflicts about data, and political polarization gets reflected in controversies around science. Nevertheless, for such a science-hungry, science-loving, science-admiring country, it is striking the extent to which rifts have opened up between public health authorities and political authorities in this country, Maybe it reflects a little bit what Caroline was talking about, that is the extreme difference in the nature of the transmission and the spread as they occur in different localities and different local circumstances. So across the world today, of course, if we look at the case fatality rate for COVID, if we look at the mortality figures, um, why is it that Italy and Germany, which are fairly close together and all members of the European Union, have such drastic differences, uh, such that even though orders of magnitude, there are the same numbers of recorded cases of COVID infection in both countries. There are more in Italy, but it's not significantly more. But the number of deaths is... Four to five times higher in Italy than it is in Germany. So, what is it that accounts for these differences? Now, that set of questions, which might be one for epidemiologists, has enormous re- repercussions in the policy realm. So, like, whose model are you going to believe? At what level of government should the governance be occurring? Uh, whose TV shows are you going to click onto to find the right facts? Is it going to be the president of the United States, or is it going to be the governor? Of New York, or for that matter, is it going to be the mayor of New York? And we're in a situation where, uh, in such an information rich world where we supposedly have everything at our fingertips, so the decision who you click onto, who you key onto, um, gives you a very different picture of the world. And I think that for the social sciences in this moment, it is absolutely key and crucial to understand where those differences arise from and what we're going to do about them. Because without a much closer kind of partnership between the the basic knowledge generators about the way the physical systems and the physical entities are behaving and moving and the social sciences that say something about our institutions and their capacities, and people's own willingness to believe in those institutions, we are not going to get the right public health solutions. Now, I do think, and I'll just say a couple of words about this, and then stop in this first round, that we know a lot. I mean, just like Victoria was stressing, that we already know a lot about viral behaviors. And it's meaningful to ask the question, you know, sort of like the Pass over question, why is this night different from all other nights? Uh, you can ask, you know, why is this virus different from all other viruses? And you can ask, why is the set of responses to this virus so different from responses to other crises? But it also opens up a comparative terrain. And we can look back at other crises and say, these things generically have not worked, and these things generically have worked. So one point that I would make and stress is that the post hoc analysis of crisis always, and I think this is almost axiomatic, always shows that things were known about the likelihood of such a crisis and even how such a crisis would occur. So after the Challenger disaster, it became known that we knew how that defective O-ring would behave under certain kinds of weather conditions like Freezing point temperatures. So the question becomes not did we know or didn't we know, but why is what we knew not transmitted to the places where we act? And that opens up a whole set of questions about in the social sciences that I'm happy to come back to. But one, another sort of corollary thing to point out is that how knowledge works its way through institutional. Structures and political systems is extremely culturally specific. So you can't just say as a universal matter, we know this fact. Therefore, people are going to behave in response to this fact as if they're rationally programmed computers or robots. I mean, that is not the way things work. The knowledge gets filtered through particular cultural ways of understanding that make some claims credible and other claims not. In my own work, I've referred to this property of political cultures as civic epistemologies. That is, I think we as publics have, depending on which political system we were brought up in, we have particular ways of understanding what the authorities tell us, particular ways of holding knowledge itself publicly accountable. And many of my Chinese students and colleagues have told me that they're more authority trusting culture has produced less controversy about whether to take something at face value. Is this kind of isolation, for instance, a legitimate thing? Well, if the authorities tell us this is the right answer, then we accept that. Um, we have, uh, right now, exceedingly polarized political culture which, coupled to this information-seeking society that we are, has tended to breed conspiracy theories, like where is this virus actually coming from, and a tendency to feed into social divisions and fragmentations that we already had. So when we begin to pick up the pieces and try to think, how do we become a wiser society? In the moment, for sure, because we have a great deal of variation state by state in what people are doing, but we're talking about second waves and third waves. And right now, there's a huge question whether we'll be any more adept at dealing with wave number two than we were dealing with wave number one. And it will depend on the lessons that we draw from this wave number one. And predominant in that set of lessons is how do we actually act on knowledge? We may have the very best scientists producing the very best results. We will not have a wise society unless we have a reasoned way of responding to the knowledge that's coming out of all our incredibly intense and, and talented scientific enterprises. So I'll stop there for the moment.
0: No, Sheila, thank you. Um, there's much to think about in what you have just raised. I just have to thank the three of you for your really brilliant discussions and uh, the ways in which we have unpacked some of these topics of the science behind COVID-19. We'll bring this session to a close and um, thank the audience again. Thanks to Middall Institute for sponsoring this. And um, let's leave it at that. Thank you very much.